We've been going through James. Um, I'll, I'll say something. When, when I started with James, I did not intend to do, uh, you know, just kind of reading straight through, but I have I, found uh, I am learning so much. Like the Lord is speaking to me as I'm studying and as I'm reading, and, and I'm just loving diving in. I, I don't know if, it, if it's the same for everybody else. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but I find James to be really good medicine for my heart, for my soul. I find James to be really good medicine for when I'm having moments of uh, cynicism and moments of dryness. I find, I find James to be really good medicine for just realigning my thoughts, and I, I hope that you're finding the same is true in James. Um, what, what we're doing, um, we are in week four, I think, of this series that we're calling Religious, and we're kind of trying to reclaim as, as Christians here at Carpenter's Way that term religious or religion. It seems to have a negative connotation in, in Christian circles, and you'll see the memes. It's like, I have a relationship with Jesus, and I don't need a religion, and, and to which I would argue, and I think James is arguing, why does it have to be either or? It seems to be that as we read through James that he wants you to have a good working relationship with Jesus, a vibrant and personal relationship with Jesus, but he also wants your religion to be useful, not useless. And he uses that term uh, a few times through that, that there's this useless religion, and I don't think anybody in here wants their time spent with the Lord and their time spent in church to be a useless endeavor, or your, your expression of Christianity when you go out to work and when you're working with the family to be useless, uh, but you want it to be useful. And so he draws this distinction between a useless, a useless religion and a religion that is pure and, and perfect and, and is useful to others. Um, Let's let's see. We we, uh, we we we've covered a lot up to this point. There there are some famous um, passages in here about counting trials of joy, which is uh, something I struggle with. Every time I face a problem, I'm like oh, here we go again. We've got another one. We're going to face it together, and uh, I have to deal with it. But he says, count it a pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because in those you find your steadfastness. When your steadfastness, you see what God is doing in your life. That trials actually reveal to us things about ourselves and reveal to us moments that the Lord can just show up and show off. Uh, this morning, I started my day, I kid you not, and I didn't ask permission to share the story, so I'll keep it really anonymous, but I started the day with someone telling me, we prayed for this and immediately God answered it. This was a hard thing. It was a trial. It was very, very difficult, and I didn't know how the answer was going to be. And as soon as we together prayed for this, a letter in the mail came, and God was answering that prayer that has been being prayed for, for a very long time. Um, that is exactly what James is saying. James is saying when we face trials of many kinds, it's opportunities to see what God is going to do. It's opportunities to see what's in ourselves. It's opportunities to be steadfast. And, and at the end of steadfastness, he says, if you let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, I'm not going to repeat every sermon that we've already had, but the point is, is that this activity that we do when we come together as a church, is when we come together at Carpenter's Way, is meant to be equipping us for the, the activities that we do outside of here. This should not be the final extent of your religion this week. Uh, you, 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 we, don't, we shouldn't be a group of people that just checks the, I went to church on Sunday box, I've handled all of my religious endeavors for the week. Instead, James thinks that when we, when we grow in this, when we practice religion this way, basically when we come here to the training course that we call church, it's equipped us for all of the activities and all of the expressions of our faith when we go home and when our kids talk back to us later in the day and when the boss gives us a piece of bad news and you have to sort of handle it. That, that James seems to think that this work that we do here equips us for out there. 
Let's, uh, let's get back to our definition of religion. We've been, we've been kind of using this as a springboard into interpreting James. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can define religion, a lot of unhelpful ways, um, a lot of toxic ways you can define religion, but I think that these two have been very helpful and, and seem to be very sober and accurate. Uh, the first is this, that religion is a particular system of faith and worship. It's a particular system. And as James is kind of uh, dissecting different systems, he's kind of doing an either-or. Sometimes we, we, uh, we approach uh, trials without joy. He says, well, don't, don't, don't use that particular system. Use this system. Approach trials with joy. Uh, don't, don't use the system where you look down on people who seem to be lower than you or who seem to be worse off and only, only associate with people that can benefit you. Don't, don't use that system. The particular system that James is employing is that we would look at all people as image bearers of the one true God and therefore all equal. In fact, those who are at lower statuses in life, who are poor in the world, he says, are rich in the faith. And we get to learn what the Lord is doing in their life when we draw close to them instead of showing partiality. So religion is a particular system of faith and worship. The second definition is it's a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. And and what I think I'm discovering in in myself as we we work through James is is that if we pursue life the way that the Lord has prescribed us to, the way that we're instructed to through God's word. If we, if we pursue this life, our religion, um, it's more than just a, a face that we put on to show everybody else that we have it all together. Our religion becomes something that, that we use to, to promote our relationship with Jesus, and we grow a history of trusting Jesus, and we get to see that Jesus was there that time, and Jesus was there that time, Jesus was there that time. The next time I face a trial that I thought was big three times ago, I already know my Jesus has overcome that, and, and I can see it. So the, the activities produce a system in which we, 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 we see the Lord at work. So let's, let's look together uh, at James 3. I want to uh, warn you. <laughs> None, none of us walk out of this without like, oh, yeah, I've, I've got that one figured out. The last week, uh, if you remember, um, he ended and he was talking about faith without works is dead. And so there's this, there's this um, uh, need uh, that we have to, to serve the Lord, not, not to impress him or not to earn our salvation. No, it's, it's something that we do to, to bring, you know, to, to, to show that our faith is true. And now he warns one of the activities that people may want to do a lot of is talk and teach. And so in James chapter three, let's, let's read this together. He says, not many of you uh, should become teachers, my brothers, which is terrifying to me because here I am, like, what is my job primarily to teach? Don't do that. Not many of you should anyway. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He says, you already know this. You already know that those who stand up and proclaim truths of God are going to be judged with greater strictness. This is, this is a, a weight that's, that's heavy on me. Like I, I will one day stand before the Lord Jesus and be held accountable for everything that I taught you was true. Um, if, if I do anything to try to manipulate people to, into a certain action of behavior, or I say things that is not in a way reflective of the way Jesus would have said them, then, then I, as a teacher, am going to be held accountable to it. But, but he says that, that you know that teachers, those who teach, will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I, think, I think we all know of at least one person who they would, would promote themselves as very godly people, but somehow have failed in a very public way. And that failure stings different than one who didn't promote themselves in that way. I'm, th- I'm thinking of um, uh, 
the, the idea of just a, a, a lay person in, in their marriage collapses. They, they weren't a teacher. They weren't out in public. And, and we mourn that and we surround them. But then when a pastor or a church leader, someone who you've really respected in some way, they go through this same heartbreak. Their, their family and their marriage is also falling apart. You, there's this pause where you kind of judge light and you want to realign all the things that were taught in that moment. He's warning that those of us who teach, those of us who stand and proclaim God's words, those of us who, like, even in your families, who are the only beacon of truth and God's word in your family, that, that when, when things hit hard, uh, you're held accountable for the things that you were saying all along. Let's keep going. He says this in verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. How, how many of us stumble? You can yell it out. All of us stumble in many ways. I'm going to tell you a little secret. Um, this is, if this is a shock to you, you don't know me well enough. Um, a day will come, and I will let you down. And I'm sorry. I don't know what it will be. I haven't planned it. It's not premeditated letting you down. But we all stumble in many ways. I and you are not perfect people and James begins this, and he, he admits, he's going to talk a little bit about like, some things that we can work on, some things that we'd be mindful of, but we just need to be just honest with each other. Um, I, I will let you down at some point. I will, I will not call you when, when I should have. You will let me down at some point, because we all stumble in many ways. Somebody on this side of the room is going to let somebody on this side of the room down, and someone on our Facebook feed right now is going to let one of their Facebook friends down. Because why? Because we all stumble in many ways. There's going to be hope at the end of this, but we need to be a group of people that one understands um, the expectation is not uh, uh, absolute perfection from uh, leaders. The expectation is not absolute perfection from, as a parent, I, I struggle with this. I, I got mad at my kids and I fussed at them and I was like, I just feel bad. Ashley even said to me yesterday, this is just full confession moment. Uh, I, was, I was losing my mind and, and my kids, I've repeated myself, I don't know how many times. And at the end of me correcting my son, who had to go and have a moment of, uh, you know, just silence, um, Ashley says, it's not that what you said was wrong, it's that you were correcting out of anger. And I was like, yeah, buddy, I was. I sure was correcting out of anger. You, you tell a kid 16 times the same thing over and over again, you kind of go a little bonkers a little bit. And, and the point is, and Ashley was completely right, like I, I, I would have been wise to just kind of take in a breath and responded the same thing, but with, okay, let's, no more second chances. Like, here we go. Now discipline is going to occur. But instead, it came out as anger. Why? Why did I respond out of anger? Uh, other than my, me losing my mind, it's because we all stumble in many ways. And, in fact, he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. And so what we get with James is that he, he takes this idea that we're all going to stumble in many ways. Okay, many ways we're going to stumble. Some of us will, will stumble, uh, you know, financially. Some of us will stumble with, with maybe how we treat each other. We all stumble in many ways. But then he adds us, what ways do you want to talk about today, James? He says, uh, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. And so we're going to spend the next few verses, James wants to talk a lot about the things that come out of our mouth and the, the way that we use our mouth to either build each other up or to tear them down. And I'm just going to give you a hint, a clue about something that I think is important to the Lord. 
Um, I used to do this uh, with, with teenagers. If you have a teacher and the exam is next week, and, the, and right, uh, right at the end of the class, you just assess, like, okay, that teacher spent 80% of her time talking about X. What do you think is going to be on the test next week? X. It seems to be very important to this teacher that we cover this by, based on the amount of time that it's talking about. James spends a lot of his entire letter talking about how we use our mouth, what comes out of our mouth, and the power that our mouth ultimately has in affecting people around us. And it's not just James. I mean, th- think about the amount of stuff uh, in, in all of Scripture that warns us, hey, we need to be careful. We need to be careful about what we're saying. Even, even Solomon in Proverbs, he says things that are like, it's better to keep your uh, mouth quiet and let others think you're foolish than to open your mouth and prove them right. That is, that is wonderful, wonderful advice. So much of Scripture says, hey, be careful with your mouth. Why? Why? Why does God care so much about our mouth? Why does he care so much about the, the, the thoughts that escape our brain through our vocal cords? What, what is so important about that? Here's why. He says in verse 3, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look also at ships. Uh, Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by very small rudders wherever the will of the pilot directs. Okay, so a horse, big old beast, big muscles. You put a a metal bridle in that horse. You can guide the horse anywhere you want. Big old ship. Anybody go down to the wheelhouse and like the ship comes through, they honk the horn, everybody cheers and claps. That huge ship is guided by a piece of material that is less than 1% the size of the rest of the ship. It is steering. The thing that keeps it from taking out the wheelhouse restaurant is this little piece of metal in the back that we call a rudder. And he says, look how big that ship is, and it's controlled by just a rudder. And then he says this about the tongue in our mouth. He says in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. We have so much power in our words and in our mouth. We have power to, to build each other up and to absolutely decimate each other. There's a little piece of wisdom. I know it's true because it rhymes. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will... Who made that up? That guy just never went through sixth grade. Can we agree? <laughs> like, whoever made that jingle is like, I've got a tune. I don't care if it doesn't make sense or if it's true or not. I'm going to sing it and make it true. And then we all say it. We tell our kids, you know, it's just what they say. It's just words that, that happen. Sticks and stones may make, break my bones, but words devastate. Words will murder. Words will scar. You you cut my arm off, I can go get a prosthetic, but if you scar me with your words effectively enough, I carry it with me for the rest of my life. Our words have amazing power. And James admits it in all of Scripture is in agreement that even though our tongue is small and even though we excuse our words, it has amazing ability and it boasts of great, great things. When I was in sixth grade, uh, uh, somewhere in there, middle school, it was a different time. We would all like ride our bikes throughout the town. You know, like the rule was you can't go over the railroad tracks. Well, railroad tracks are long and only in one direction. So I could go 50 miles in one direction on my bike as long as I didn't go a quarter mile this way. And so we would ride all over the place. And so me and some friends, we ended up at the middle school that we were at. I think it was summertime. I don't Maybe it was a weekend, but uh, we're all there. And uh, there's some steps going up to the school, something like this. And we're all sitting on the steps. There's like nine of us on the steps. We've all, we've all, there are no adults around and, um, I don't remember the context. I don't remember what we were talking about, but we were all laughing. We were all having a good time. And someone said something really funny, and I thought it was hilarious. And so I laughed, because that's what you do when things are funny. You laugh at them, right? 
And this girl, who I remember her face, and thankfully I can't remember her name because she may live in the area or something, but I remember her face. She looks at me in disgust after I laughed. And she goes, what was that noise? She says, you need to go to laughing school. I'm like, well, you need to go to nice school. You know, and like, I don't know. Like, I couldn't have a good comeback. And, and I remember being, for years, being self-conscious about the noise. I didn't know how to laugh anymore. All of a sudden, I'm like, ha, ha, ha. I don't, I don't know what to do. In my defense, I was going through puberty, and who knows what my voice was doing at the time. It was all squeaky and, and different things. Uh, you need to go to laugh school. Why don't you shut your face? I'm sure everybody thought what she said was hilarious. I'm telling you right now, I am 36 years old, and I remember the feeling that her words had, as dumb as they are and as funny as they are right now. Her, her words, I probably went to the nurse 50 times that year. I have no idea what they did to heal my body, but her words scarred my like, intelligence as a guy in middle school. Because why? Because the tongue boasts of many great and powerful things. We would be wise um, parents. We'd be wise coworkers. We'd be wise supervisors. We'd be wise spouses. If we put our tongue in check and we admitted that it has the amount of power it does in fact have. And when we minimize it or when we say, oh, you know, I just have a quick tongue, I can't control. When we do anything we want to just try to pretend it doesn't have the power it has, we're giving it all of the fuel it needs to lay waste to everybody around us. The tongue boasts of great things. And he says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue, he says, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I don't know what James is thinking about when he, when he recounts this, but he writes this as someone who has gotten himself in trouble with his mouth. Can we agree? Can, can we agree that when we've done something and we've made a mistake and when we recount it, it feels a little bit more visceral? When, when James is talking about the tongue, he's not saying, hey, I have some wisdom for you I want to pass down. He's passing it down as someone who has stung someone or who, who himself has been stung. I wonder what he's thinking about. Hey, there, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us what Jesus' childhood was like, but I want to remind you that James was Jesus' little brother. And I can't help but think that whenever he says things like this, he, he might even be remembering a time when he got mouthy with someone that he later finds out to be his Lord and Savior, his big brother Jesus. Could you imagine? There's a moment that we have recorded in Scripture where none of Jesus' family believes in his mission, and they're kind of warning Jesus to come back. I wonder if James said something then that he later regrets, and he says, it's just, it's just set on fire by hell. My tongue just goes off on people, and it destroys and it devastates. Jesus, uh, he talks about the tongue. I want, I want to look at something in, in Luke. You, you don't have to turn there, uh, but it's part of the... Um, Sermon on the Mount, and in, in Luke chapter 6, if you want to mark it later, verse 45, here's what Jesus says about the tongue. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus draws a direct connection about what is happening in someone's heart to what is coming out of their mouth. And so when James says the tongue boasts of great things and it sets on fire a great forced fire and it's set on fire by hell, he, he's admitting something to us. He's admitting that whenever he does some introspection and he looks at his heart, there's still some work to be done. 
When, when, when whatever flows out of our mouth and you wish immediately that you could grab it and just shove it back down your throat and swallow it, that, that thing that comes out of your mouth, Jesus would say, is an overflow of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's, that's really good news. It's, it's, it's good news. It, one, it, one it, it's, it's trying and, and it's uh, some, in some ways insulting. In some ways it's, it's difficult to take in. It's difficult to admit. But as soon as you realize that that's true, it's great, great news. Because as soon as you realize that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, anytime you say something that you wish didn't happen, you have an immediate window to what is really in your heart, not what you pretend was in your heart. Here's, here's what I know. Um, I've been in church long, long enough to have played this game. I will come into this building, and I'll put on my good face, and I'll say all the nice things. I'll even refer to you all as these and thous, because that's how I should speak in church or whatever. I can control my tongue for the one hour that I'm in here. And then when I'm out, once I'm out of here, I can do and say and be whatever I want. And James flips it, and he says, he says your tongue... It sets on, on fire the world around you. And if you see that, if you realize that that's happening, then you immediately have something to begin asking the Lord to work on. You immediately, have, like, what is going on in my heart? Why do I have so much anger? He said in that verse, he says that the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. He really likes that picture. He uses the word staining uh, earlier in chapter 1. He says in verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, we've talked about that, and what? To keep oneself unstained from this world. Our goal, our religion, this Christian religion, is meant to equip us to keep ourselves unstained from this world, and yet we find in our body, our tongue, our mouth, and it just keeps staining us. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth is speaking. What, what should we do? Well, he said earlier that in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. What, what we admit now is that none of us are perfect. None of us are getting out of this without knowing, like, I, I am growing. I, I, need to, I need to turn this over to the Lord. Look at, look at verse 7. He says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human, how many? None. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, he says, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The same mouth that we use to sing these songs to the Lord gets so frustrated. I'm, I'm just going to speak for myself because I'm, I'm convicted. The same mouth that was, was, was deeply in worship singing, yesterday in anger corrected my son in a way that I regret. The same mouth. With the same mouth, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We talk down to people, we belittle them, we talk about them behind their back because her tongue is just, it's tasty to be cynical, isn't it? It's tasty to be sarcastic, it's tasty to say things. It shouldn't be. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, verse 10. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It's not how things ought to be, and yet none of us are perfect. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, none of these things can happen. He says, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What he's saying and what he's admitting in himself, because he's admitting that he's not perfect, is that we're all in need of a Savior. If you don't believe it, if, if it has never been more clear, then just admit that sometimes something comes out of your mouth that you regret ever came out of your mouth. And the only reason Jesus would teach us that that thing was able to come out of her mouth is because of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We all need a savior. None of us have mastered this. and None of us are perfect. So this isn't like a stop cussing. You know, I've, I've heard this, this whole passage preached before, and it's usually preached in like, okay, and basically just get all the four-letter words out of your vocabulary, and, and you fixed it. James isn't talking about that. He's talking about how we use our mouth to either build people up or tear them down. He's talking about how sometimes our mouth gets us in trouble and we put our foot in our mouth. And he's saying every time that that happens, don't, don't really need to beat yourself up on it. Just turn it over to the Lord and say, Jesus, I know what you can help me with because I'm not perfect. And I just proved it to myself by the way I talked to my wife. I just proved it by the way I talked to my boss. I just proved it by the way that I talked to my son. Jesus, what's going on in my heart? I think, I think I, ha- I found something for you to work on, and you just turn that over. Let's look at the next bit. He turns it around to talk about wisdom, because none of us are perfect, but some of us can be wise. And he's going he's gonna to talk about this idea that wisdom can guard our tongue. Wisdom can shut us up a little. He says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I love, I love that picture. The, in, in, in his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You know, some of us know people who are just, they're just joys to be around. They don't say much usually. They're kind of quiet. When they do speak, it's just gold. Am I right? Like, like every now and then that quiet voice who barely says anything in the meeting is like, I have an idea. And then they say the most genius thing, like, why don't you talk more? I'm just waiting to build up some genius, I guess. I don't know. Out of the meekness, they, they speak. I don't know if James means this here. I tried to look it up, and I can't find anybody like in a, uh, uh, a book talking about this. But this idea of meekness, uh, I remember a, a preacher talking about uh, the Beatitudes Sermon on the Mount, that the meek shall inherit the earth. You, you know the, the phrase? And it, that, that's, the preacher, he said that, that the word meek uh, is a horse trainer term. And I don't know if James means it this way, but he just got finished talking about a horse, so I'm going to bring it up. Um, this horse training term is that... It, it, Sometimes meek, we think of weak, and we think of like feeble, we think of soft, we think of not, not really able to take care of themselves. And, and what he said is that meekness refers to the strength of a horse who has been tamed. The, you have a well-trained horse that you can guide around, and you uh, like a cowboy, I don't like guide around, I don't know what I'm thinking of. Uh, you, you're going to ride this horse, you're going to ride through town, and you're going to say the British are coming, or whatever you do on your horses, and, and you're guiding this huge beast who could kill you if it ever decided to. Like it would just turn, bite you, rip you off, and punch you with its big, strong legs. But because it's trained, it hasn't lost any of its strength. It's just meek. Meek is strength that has been controlled. Meek is strength that has been, been taken underway. And he, he was talking about bridling a horse. And just as a horse guides everywhere, so does the tongue. And now he's talking about meekness. I, I see the connection here. He says, by his c- good conduct, this wise man 
show the works in his meekness of wisdom. He still has the sarcastic tongue in his mouth, and he still has the ability with some quick wit, put you in your place. But he just, in his wisdom, knows it doesn't help. In her wisdom knows, I don't have anything to say that's going to benefit anyone. And so if you have nothing nice to say, what did mom always say? Say nothing at all. But in his good conduct, not in what he says to prove to you how smart he is, but in his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And now he starts to talk about the heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says in verse 14, but if you have, what do you have? If you have bitter jealousies, has our mouth ever been like steered by jealousy in our heart? Bitter, you're mad at somebody. You want to put them in their place. Or selfish ambition in your hearts? The, the, the desire to take, the desire to promote yourself, the desire to put down your coworker so that you can get the promotion. Ever what selfish ambition looks like? He says, but if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't use your mouth to accomplish those goals because it's going to set the world on fire. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I can't tell you how many workplaces I've been in. Uh, and I've, I've had a, a few handfuls of jobs, different categories of jobs even. And, and in those workplaces, I, I can't tell you the number of times someone will say something and it's like, listen, it just has to be said. And then they say vile things out of anger. I'm, I'm going to tell you because I know the right way. I'm going to correct you in this moment. I'm going to, I'm going to, but you didn't have to. You didn't have to speak. He says that kind of wisdom where, where you use your mouth, even if what you're saying is right, but you use it out of selfish ambition or bitter jealousy, he says, that's not the wisdom that comes from God. You know where that wisdom comes from? He says, that's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. That is just people that use a little piece of knowledge to go in and be powerful. But the wise person, the one who uses their mouth well, who knows things, is in their good conduct to show that they're wise. They don't always have to speak up. It says, for where, verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, wherever these things are flourishing, wherever, wherever people's mouths are just going unchecked, whether it be a workplace or a home or wherever, or the, the you know, we haven't even talked about this, but the things that we say to ourselves. Who, who in here just says awful, wicked things to themselves? I'm stupid. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to measure up. That's the same muscle that is, is overflowing here. And he says, wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. We have to get our mouth in check so that we can get things back in order. Wouldn't it be great if we would have just some of our politicians come to church today and just stop talking so much? It's amazing to me that um, an event can happen right now on the spot. I don't know what it is. Uh, Godzilla comes up out of the water, whatever. And 30 seconds later, CNN will have the Godzilla expert able to speak 30 minutes straight solid on all of their expert thoughts on this. How in the world did you come up with being the expert on the thing that has never happened before in the history of America, and yet you're the Godzilla consultant on the news? No, no, no. What I think really is that they're not experts at much of anything except just getting us angry and getting us going. Um, They speak a lot, they stir up a lot, and then they turn us loose to be be mad. It says but in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first this, it's pure. 
This is good news. This is good news for us. Is, is what James saying, does it make sense to us? Is it fitting where it's at? If that's true, he says the wisdom from above is first pure. It's, it, it, it has no ulterior motive other than the goodness of the Lord and your goodness. No, nobody's trying to manipulate you by saying, like, hey, if you say something that you didn't mean to say, it's a reflection of, of what, to, what to work on. The wisdom from above is first pure, then what? What is it after it's pure? It's then it's peaceable. You can tell that you're talking to a wise person that whenever you go to them and say, okay, I heard what you said. I have another way of looking at it. Can we discuss it? If the answer is no, or it, they respond in anger, or how dare you tell me what, if it's not peaceable, you know, like, I'm just going to check out for a second. Because what you're entering into is not a wise conversation. You're entering into something else. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. It's gentle. So many people in, in, in workplaces that, that I've been in, uh, the, I'm thinking of stories of uh, being in rooms of like 20 people and just someone has to get their point across. And he says that this wisdom is, is gentle. This person doesn't need to stand up and speak. This, this person doesn't have a need to make sure that their voice is heard. This person just has a little piece of wisdom. And if everybody would just be quiet for a second, they stand up and say, and this is what I think. And that's usually the golden moment of the meeting. This person is open to reason. They'll hear what you're saying. They'll hear other sides of it. What did James say before about speaking? Be slow to speak. Be quick to hear. This person is open to reason. This person will just listen. Like, okay, if I'm wrong about this, I will listen to your perspective. They're open to the idea that maybe, maybe there's another way of looking at it. And what else are they? They're also full of mercy and good fruits. When you look at this wise person who has learned to, to, to bridle their tongue and learn to, to trust the Lord with, with that and learn to, to grow, that they're full of mercy. They look at people and you say to them, I can't believe so-and-so did that to me. And you, you might, they, they might respond to you with, yeah, but they're really, you know that they're having a hard time. You know that finances are, you know that there's mercy involved. They're, they're willing to see someone else's point of view and they're full of good fruits. He says that they're impartial and they're sincere. You talk to them and they don't have an ulterior agenda and they, they sincerely will have a conversation with you. And a harvest of righteousness, he says, verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so now James has come full circle because before when the tongue was unchecked, it was a small fire that's setting a blaze of forest. But yet when the tongue is checked by wisdom, he says that it is a harvest of righteousness and it is sowing peace by those who make peace. James wasn't perfect. He says no man is perfect. The, only the perfect man has learned to bridle his tongue. And in the history of mankind, there's only been one perfect person. That makes the rest of us a group of people that like we're, we're just works in progress. And as we're works in progress, if we're really honest with ourselves, as we're works in progress, we admit with our mouth, sometimes our mouth does things that we're excited about. We bless the Lord. We bless other people. We're really kind. And sometimes, even Jesse, something falls out of his mouth, and he's like, golly, it was angry. It was vindictive. It was witty. It was hilarious, but inappropriate. It was, it was, it was meant to make someone feel small or whatever, and it should be a reminder immediately in that regret, not I'm hopeless. It should be a reminder immediately 
that I have something to turn to the Lord. I have something to say, Lord, I'm not perfect, and I need some wisdom. I want, and I know this is true of you, I want my um, outflow, my impact, my footprint in this world to be what that last verse says, a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to make peace? You want, you want to be known as someone who is wise and gentle, that your actions point to uh, your wisdom, your actions point to your, your, your Lord who is saving you and is molding you. You want, to, you want to be that thing is to learn to put our mouth in check. Of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. So what we really need to be mindful of then is what has been overflowing our heart? What, what, is, what is it that is just growing in us that when we left it unchecked, it just continues to grow? What ingredient is it? I, I've been hating on, on like the, the national news a lot, and, and I'm not going to stop. It's, I, 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 I don't understand how, how there's not like some organization that says, hey, this is getting kind of toxic, and we're just like making everybody angry for the sake of making them angry. If, if you find like an increase of, of hate and garbage in your life, th- then it would be wise and our religion would prescript that we pause and we just like, I need, to, I need to stop putting some things in my heart. If you have a coworker that they're hilarious but toxic and you just find like your jokes are becoming more toxic and your, your view on your other coworkers is becoming more toxic as a result of what this conversation continues to be over and over and over again, then the prescription is that we guard what goes in our heart. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the mouth is speaking things that I wish it didn't speak. So I need to make sure that I'm not putting more garbage in my heart and maybe take in a little extra truth, a little extra grace. Maybe I should hang out with people who are meek and wise and gentle and just learn to talk like them for a while. Maybe, maybe as a dad who uh, sometimes responds to my kids in anger, I would be wise if I hung out with really calm and gentle dads who are like amazing and I would learn to speak and act and dad like them. This message, and, and if, if it's like, oh, Jesse, stop stepping on my toes, it's not meant to be that. It's meant to be our religion is pointing to us. Here, here's, what, here's what the Lord is saying that we can work on. And if we do it well, if we do what James is instructing us to do, then what we do is we become this last verse, verse 18, that out of us, out of Carpenter's Way, the people here, a harvest of righteousness will begin to be sown in peace by those, us, who make peace. Let's go. Let's make peace. Let's be gentle with each other. Let's be gentle with our coworkers. When someone comes to us and they have something real salty that they want to say, don't, don't, don't grin from ear to ear how tasty the cynicism was. And just quietly, okay. Let your example and let your speech be, be kind and sweet. Maybe, maybe, maybe we speak less and let our actions point to grace and hope. Maybe when someone says something unkind about our friend or our coworker or our relative or uncle so-and-so who keeps getting wasted, maybe in that we show a little mercy. Yeah, you know what? I, I, think, I think I will pray for uncle so-and-so and his addictions. I, I think it might be hard to face life when you have an addiction, and we'd be, as James was saying before, uh, quicker to listen, slower to speak. And then we start to sow peace around us. 
I'm going to pray, and then we will watch the queue together before we're dismissed. Father, uh, God, we thank you um, for your word and um, just this laser focus on our mouth. Lord, we thank you that we have uh, just built in us uh, an opportunity to, to see things to turn to you, to see things to trust you on. Father, none of us are perfect, um, but we trust the one that is. Father, all of our hope is in Jesus, but, but even now as we, as we want to be better and we want to be more like Jesus, I pray, Father, that you don't let our mistakes hinder us, but Lord, we use those as opportunities to point to you to seek you, and to let you work on our heart. Father, we trust your word that out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks, and, and Lord, we want, we want to speak well. and We want to speak well of people made in your image. We want to build each other up. So, Father, may we as a group and may I individually um, be one who speaks with peace, um, speaks with righteousness, and just sows that in a world that is, uh, seems to be burning down. Lord, we love you. And we pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.